is broken and grown. We're going to get more to that. This is going to be a chapter eight. We'll back up more. Okay, so God has a plan now to redeem the world, to fix the world, and He's going to fix the world via fixing the images. Does that make sense? If humans exist to reflect the, the, to, to bring the will of God to the earth, to be His image bearers on the earth, and in light of our failure and our sin and us worshiping creation over Him, in light of that, the world itself is breaking down. His good creation is breaking down because we fail to be the humans that they are supposed to be. We just sort of feed off the creation instead of live in our life in God and do and be what He's called us to do. And be in our failure that the creation itself, the Romans, falls apart, and in the creation itself falling apart, God's way of rescuing the world is rescuing the image bearers, rescuing humanity, and in rescuing humanity, the first step in that was the creation of a nation that would be in relationship with him, that would have his laws, that would understand his way of life, his culture, and in blessing that nation, he would bless the world. So this is Israel. We have any familiarity with the Old Testament, that's what's going on with Israel. God calls a man, that man has a family, and from that family comes a nation, the nation of Israel. And the idea behind Israel is the promise made to Abraham. The promise made to Abraham is, I'm going to give you, who cannot have children, enough children that would number more than the stars in the sky, and then through them, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then what we're seeing unfold as this argument develops, like we talked about over the last few weeks, Israel was called, created to be the light in the darkness. So when the mirrors, as we use that language, are broken and no longer reflect the light of God into the darkness, the world itself is dark. And so what does he do? He creates this nation that is in relationship with him. And now you have, once again, a nation, a group of people, a people of God that exists, not just to be blessed by God, but a people of God for the world. They begin to reflect the light of God in the creation. And if you want to use that image and that metaphor, Israel is called created to be the light of the world, a people for the world. This is why when Jesus comes on the scene, Matthew 5, you're supposed to be the light of the world. You're supposed to be the salt of the earth. What happens when the salt loses its saltiness? Well, it's going to be thrown out of shrinking by men. It can't do what it's going to do. He's speaking directly to Israel when he said this to Israel is called to be a light in the world, a people for the world. Israel, however, has been unfaithful. That's what we're seeing unpacking about the entire Old Testament. And then you're seeing Paul hit on that. Romans 2, right? That's what we're hitting on Romans 2. And, and, the, and the Israelites themselves are saying, well, we have your law. Of course, you love us. And God is saying, you know, all the law did was show you how bad you've been unfaithful. It doesn't save you. It just shows you you've been so unfaithful. If you read most of the prophets, you're going to see the prophets lament over the people of Israel. And they lament in this very, very uh, emotive way. Jeremiah 2 is a great example. God looks at this nation and he envisages them like children that he's raised that he used to lead by the hands while they learned to walk, and he grew them up, and then those children left them. Or, like a wife, whom he loved and lavished affirmation and gave to, who leaves him to go be a prostitute. So that's the language that God uses about this room. I loved you. I created you. I was with you. And you love to do your own thing, to worship your own God, to worship yourself. 
Israel has been unfaithful. So here's the question that we've seen raised for everything. Israel has been unfaithful. So if, if Israel is the mechanism by which the world is saved, and Israel is unfaithful, does that mean that God's plan to fix the world through Israel is, 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 doesn't work anymore? He has to figure out a new plan. So right, this is the question coming up. Right? Israel has been unfaithful. Does this mean that God's plan to fix everything has failed? And the answer is no, obviously. No, God has done through Jesus what Israel failed to do. Okay, so then that's where Romans 1 and 2 has been going. Uh, I kind of summarized a bit. There's a, a, there are so many other deeper things in there that we just sort of had to move past and try to unpack a little bit. But there's a lot more about the relation of the law, the relationship of Torah, to the Israelites, a lot of stuff that sort of move past that so we can get to where we're going. No, God has done through Jesus what Israel failed to do. And then we summarize most of chapter 3, 4, we so that we can land in the end of chapter 3. When we get into verses, uh, the first 20 verses, this other question is going on that's being raised. If Israel failed to be faithful to God, to be the light of the world, to be the salt of the earth, and then Jesus comes and does what Israel was supposed to do, what about Israel now? So, so has God just sort of, well, that didn't work, and so we're going to go with plan B, plan B is Jesus, and then we'll move along with this new Christian church thing, and then Israel and their, the, you know, the, the sacrifice and the goats and all that, that's sort of antiquated, it's old. We'll do something new, we'll build buildings and people will come sing songs and preach, and that'll be what we do now. All right, so, that, so maybe that's not all being said there, but a lot of what's being said there is, is this whole Jesus Christianity thing a plan B sort of thing? What about the Jews now? And what Paul does here is going to continue to do this until we get to actually chapter 9. He's going to raise the question of the Jews, and then he's going to make that question even more difficult to answer. And then he's going to raise it again, and he's going to add more stuff to the puzzle and make it more difficult to answer. And he sort of teases you with this question until we get to chapter 9, and he unpacks from 9 to 11. This is what's going on with the Jews. So we're not going to answer that question. So what about the Jews? Uh, he partially will delay the answer to that question, while, like I said, brings a lot more issues that need to be raised. Before he answers the question, fully in verse 11. Um, and so here we're going to see sort of chapter, uh, verses 1 to 20 and chapter 3. He really builds this intricate, complex problem. And then brings Jesus up as the answer to that problem. We understand the problem. So I'm going to read uh, verses 1 to 20. Most of this should make sense in light of what we've already said, but we'll bring to light a couple more things. We're just going to read it quickly. Chapter 3, 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Remember, circumcision is just, it's not a medical, it's not a medical thing, but it's just a sign of the covenant between Abraham and God as a sign of the Israelite. Uh, what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. You see the language there. The Jews were given a task. They were given a message to declare. They were given something to do. They were entrusted with bringing about fixing the earth, if you want to go that far. But they were entrusted with the oracles of God, the prophecies, and all these things. What if someone faithful? Does their faithlessness, does their failure, their faithlessness, nullify the faithfulness of God? Is God not going to be faithful anymore to fix sin in the world? Is he not going to be faithful to the promises he made to Abraham, to Moses, to David, uh, to the prophets? Not going to be, is he not going to be faithful to those because Israel failed? That's the question being asked. By no means, let God be true, even though everyone were alive. As it is written, that you, God, that God may be justified in his words and prevail and prevail when he judges. 
But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, so if the failure of the Jews still shows that God is good, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. So if we go about failing, and God still is proven to be good, even in our failure, so God accomplishes defeating sin in the world through Jesus, so He does what He was going to do, even though Israel failed, is it still okay for God to say, you failed in your, in your pursuit of evil, your pursuit of wickedness, is worthy of judgment? That seems wrong. Right? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us, to speak in human way. And he says this by no means. How could God judge the world? But if through my life, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil? So what about this? Why don't we just do evil? Why don't we just do whatever we want so that, so that grace abounds and glory abounds? Why don't we do that? That good may come. As some people slavery and charge us with saying their condemnation is judged. So people were saying of Paul and of Christians that this whole grace thing is just a little too good. They're free to do whatever they want. They don't have to follow Jewish law. They don't have to be uh, obedient to Torah. They can basically do whatever they want to do because they've got grace. And so they move along doing all that they want to do. And he's saying their condemnation is just. They don't understand the grace of God at all. They don't understand the sacrifice of Jesus at all. Let's keep going. I want to line in, in 21. Uh, and the post. What then? Still this question of the Jews. Are we Jews being better off? So we were entrusted with the oracles of God. We were the people of God first. Are we better off? He says, no, not at all. We've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, specifically non-Jews, so everyone, are under sin, as it is written. There's a litany of quotes from the Old Testament about the failure of humanity before God. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that what the law says it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. It's just a way of saying in ancient law courts, I can't give a defense. Basically, I know like, like if I keep talking, I'm just going to take myself and I'll give it. We call it people fit, right? That's what they do. They're not saying, I'm just not going to talk because it just goes to the truth. Right? So saying, so every mouth may be stopped. The whole world may be held accountable to God. Everyone is fair. And before God, who is both loving and just, every human stands accountable to Him for every thought, deed, word, and And then, like he's going back to the Jews, for by the works of the law, so by being obedient to Torah, no human being will be justified in this sight. It is not going to be obedience. In the state that you're in, it's not going to be obedience to a rule book that's going to say that it's going to make God look at you and be like, mm, this is a good one. We really like this one here. Right? This one is really righteous, holy, pure. Like the little bit of obedience and the little bit of good deeds does not produce in front of God anything that's worth anything. 
Because God had for us to be image bearers who were as he is to the world. So no one that you know from what he says, you may speak differently, but I'm just going what he says here, Paul. Um, no one you know can say, if you've seen me, you've seen God. If you've seen me, everything I say is from the mouth of God. Everything I say, I hear from him. Everything I do, so if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, right? So this is what Jesus said in John. Jesus understood that he was a perfect image bearer. He was the one who imaged it perfectly. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Have any of you had anyone say that to you before? Never. No, like, you don't have, like, extremely arrogant friends that might have said that. Okay, I am not even, but just, just, as you can get this in your mind, because all the talk about wrath and all the talk about us standing accountable before God, it runs up against us because we're Westerners. It runs up against us because we think we're good people. It runs up against us and makes God sound like a joke. When, in fact, we all agree that no one, no human has been the human they were meant to be. Aside from Jesus, who says, you see me, you see the Father. All I do is what he does. So, all of this, uh, let me just wrap all that up. Let me kind of just wrap, I don't want to go too deep in all that. Let me wrap it up real quickly so that we can get to 21. This is the predicament. And follow me on this. I'm going to say it a few times because it's kind of complex. The predicament here is, how is God going to be faithful to his promises to Israel Abraham in the midst of Israel's failure and in the midst of the world's sin and in the midst of his own moral perfection? I'm going to say this another way and then think of me a little bit. How is God going to keep a promise to Abraham about using his descendants to rescue the world when those descendants have gone the way of the world? So they were supposed to be the life of the supposed to be different than the world. They're supposed to be in relationship with God and walk as he was going to have them walk, be blessed by him so they can be a blessing to the world. But when they do everything that the world does, how is he going to bring about saving the world when his saviors have gone the way of the world? That's predicament one. How is he going to do that? And then what he's just done in this chapter 3 is thrown something more difficult in it. How is he going to do that and at the same time? How is he going to save the world when he is bound by goodness to do away with the evil that's in the world? Okay, you see this third part of the puzzle. How is he going to be faithful to a promise he made when the people he made it to have been faithless? Not just faithless like they didn't believe. They rejected him and gone their own way and worshipped idols and completely walked away from him. How is he going to be faithful to a promise made to them? And at the same time, so how is he going to forgive them and what he's happening to church? And at the same time, not transgress him being a perfect moral judge who is just and has promised to do away with the sins of the world. He's promised to cleanse the sins of Israel from the dead. So if his saviors fail, 
and the ear is dumb in moral sense. Just put it this way. He can't just look at you and say, everything's fine, let's just move along. Because he's perfect in not just morality, but in absolutely every way. If we can think in this way. We tend to we tend to not we tend to not be okay with the justice of God because we we don't really most of us, some of us do this too much, but most of us uh, are not fully acquainted with how bad we are. Does that make sense? So the justice of God is it's, it's like a negative thing to us. It's like a book. And I talked about this last week. The justice of God is, is a refreshing thing to oppress people. The justice of God in Him moving in to fix the world is a beautiful thing to people who are marginalized, to people who are oppressed, to people who are in poverty and who are being taken advantage of. This is the Jews during this time. But we are the richest nation in the world. We are not being oppressed. Um, in some cases, the argument we made, we are the oppressors. And so when the justice of God is talked about, it doesn't resonate with us. Because there is not this wicked, ruling authority over us who is taking our children um, and putting them on a burning skillet because we have refused to do what he's asked us to do. There is not someone going around taking Christians from their homes and putting them on crosses, soaking them in oil and setting them on fire uh, because they're Christian. That's not going on. So if that was going on, you'd be looking to God and saying, where is the justice? Why do you let this guy do these things? Why don't you do something with it? You can do something with this. You can do away with all of this in a moment. Why do you just let it go on? But we, we eat Panda Express, we go to class, we play video games. So then we talk about the justice of God. It's like, well, what is this? Why is he such a giant? What's going on? So, if God is good, if God is good, He will do away with these things. The wickedness is evil here. If He's good. Now, if He's bad, He won't. But if He's good, He'll do away with it. But now God is in this predicament where He's promised to save the world, but the saviors that He's going to use have failed. They've gone the way of the world and revealed that they are just as wicked as the world. They are in Adam the way that the rest of us are in Adam. They have walked in the path of Adam just like we walked in the path of Adam. They have rejected God just like we rejected God. So now, how does that become? Plus, wickedness is locked up in the heart of those people who God loves. So just merely letting everything go isn't quite good enough. So how will God keep a promise to Abraham about using his descendants to rescue the world when those descendants have gone the way of the world and God's bound by his goodness to do away with the evil in the world? How is he going to do away with the evil in the world? So let me read 21 to 21 this book. This is interesting. But now the righteousness of God, his faithfulness, 
The righteous of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So now, something separate than this rule book that God gave to the Israelites and the prophets who came to say, there's going to be a figure that comes to save you and the world. Apart from the prophets and apart from the law, Jesus has come. The righteousness of God has come. The way of saving the world has come. And it's not through the law and the prophets, even though the law and the prophets point to him. So everything in Israel points to Jesus. If you look at the life of Jesus, it mirrors the life of Israel. And if you look at the life of Jesus, everything in the life of Israel points to Jesus. The tabernacle points to Jesus. The temple points to Jesus. The law points to Jesus. Moses points to Jesus. Isaiah points to Jesus. Jeremiah points to Jesus. Everyone, David points to Jesus. They all point to Jesus. And so when Jesus is walking around the earth, he's reading the Old Testament and I'm packing it to him. Look, this is about me. This was about me. This was about me. So that's what he's saying. The righteousness of God has come. is manifested apart from the law. Even though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Because like the said in chapter 2, the law cannot save you. And obedience to the law cannot save you. How are we going to be saved? Well, here comes Jesus to save it. Okay. Um, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's no distinction. For all of sin falls short of the glory of God. I mean, if you know the book of God, you know this. For all of sin falls short of the glory of God and they are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justified of the one who has faith in Jesus. Simply put, let me just simply put this. Jesus embodies Israel. He is the faithful Israelite that comes from the line of Abraham. So in Jesus, God has been faithful to his promise to use Israel to save the world. That's what Jesus has done. He has lived the life that Israel is supposed to live. Okay, then how does he deal with that second problem? In Jesus, because he perfectly embodies humanity, he does everything that a human is supposed to do. He is a perfect image bearer and also a perfect Israelite. He comes, goes to the cross, so that all of the wrath of God, like we've been talking about for three weeks, instead of being poured on humanity, instead of being poured onto Israel, poured onto Jesus. And being poured onto Jesus, now God stands in a place where he is both just and he can justify us who are wicked. Okay, so let me, let me, uh, let's put me on this real quick. Um, I went to church growing up when I was 14. I watched Friday. I had, I had screens in my car. I was a bad idea. Watch Friday for the first time. If you're not familiar with that, probably don't go watch it. It's a lot about smoking weed, and I thought, man, you smoking weed would be a good time. Uh, so I started smoking weed. Kind of got away from my youth group a little bit, and then really started smoking weed. By the time I graduated high school, I got into cocaine. Uh, I was doing cocaine every weekend. Then the year after that, I was doing cocaine more than every weekend. Uh, when I quit doing cocaine, I tried steroids. I didn't. I wasn't in sports. I just thought it'd be fun. And. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't fun, and, but I couldn't drink when I was on steroids, so I started taking Xanax, uh, because I still wanted to feel drunk when I went out, right? Okay, so, um, so by the time I'm 22, I've been to jail, uh, five times, uh, the fifth time for felony evading arrest. My parents, uh, my dad's a deacon in the Baptist church in the town that I grew up in. Uh, has to step off the deacon board because of what I'm doing, because it's fairly well public now, I'm going to jail five times. Uh, so it's fairly well public at this point. 
Okay, so when I'm talking about how is God just the justifier of the wicked, that's such a lofty phrase. The only way I can put this is that when I would sit in my room, uh, and, and this, is, this is the scene the day that I became a believer. I'm sitting in my room. I've gone to jail for the fifth time. I'm sort of tired of the life that I have. I see it's not producing anything in me. Um, and when I try to pray to God, and when I try to say, uh, I want something different, I feel like He's not going to listen to me because of what I've done to my parents or what I've done with my life. So because of my life, and because of what I've done to my parents, because of the pain that I've done on my mother, because of all this stuff, because of how I've shown to my parents what a Christian looks like, because this whole time I'm still claiming to Jesus, of course, because I got saved, right? Um, and so during this time, so when I go to God, it's like, I believe you exist and I believe you're good, so therefore you don't like me. Like I'm under no presupposition that he likes me for any reason. So I go to him, I sit in my chair, I want something different. Oh, yeah, you, you hate me. Um, do, do you see what I'm saying? I was not following Jesus. The notion of Jesus did not intersect with my reality. All I knew is that I had done nothing but wicked things in my life, especially for the previous seven years. And in that, in that, I did not understand how God could love me or like me or be okay with me, much less than he need God be there. And so in that, in my chair, in my room, in December, I've got no other words to say before God. I'm tired of my life. I've got no other words to say before him other than save me, save me, save me. And I didn't mean from hell. I just meant from my life. But I meant from hell also. I meant everywhere that you, in every way that you could be in that, I meant that. Save me, save me, save me. And the only thing that resonates in my heart is that's what Jesus is for. And for the first time ever in my life, Jesus, who died on the cross 2,000 years ago, intersects my failure. And for the first time, I understand the reason why Jesus had to become a man to go to the cross. Because this is how God remains just and still welcomes sinners like me into his presence. So that's what it means there to be. This is how God remains just and the justifier of the wicked. This is how God stands before the creation and the cosmos and says, this one's mine, this one is righteous. And deep down you know I am not righteous, not going to be his. And the answer is because the blood of Jesus has been put, put, put forward for you and for me, for those who believe that by faith. So, 25 and 26 is exactly what he's saying. This is how God's judgment and justifier of wicked men. This is how God's just and devoted and justifier of people like me and I would say people like you. So why is that important? Why is it important? Why is all this business about Israel important? Why does it matter that God be just and justify our lives important? We need confidence. We need a confident way to deal with our unfair. We need a confident way to deal with our unfair. I, I, I think most of us walk around in this sort of mentality. 
you walk around the mentality of, I've not done anything real bad, so of course God loves me, because God is love. Or we walk around the mentality of, God is really just, and I know my own failures, um, and I know I fail to live up, and so God doesn't really love me something. Not only do we need a place to run to with our failures, 
but we need something that's always there that even gives us freedom to talk about our failures, to talk about our insecurities. Before I was a believer, and the guys that, uh, that I was ran away from, very, very close friends, about seven of us, extremely like brothers. Um, but in there, you couldn't really be yourself. You couldn't really tell them your fears, your failures, your weaknesses. You kind of got to put on the front. You kind of got to be a person. You got to be, you got to have some sort of thing together. You have to be cool or you have to, you have to be something. I can't even put a word on what it was like. I can put it this way. Um, before I was a believer and I looked at pornography and didn't, and just didn't like myself the next day, I uh, still would never go to one of those guys and be like, hey, I've looked at pornography, but I don't want to live in that anymore, and so can you help me out? That's, that, that, there's no place in any of our frame of reference to talk about our own insecurities, to talk about our own failures, to talk about the things we don't like about ourselves, or the things that we're afraid that other people might see in us that they might not love. But when we are scientific and specific about all that Jesus has done, it not only gives us freedom from guilt, but it gives us freedom from these insecurities that we desperately need to bring forward and bring in front of people. Because if we don't, we swim around trying to be people that we're not because we're so afraid of who we are and we're so afraid of how other people might see who we are. And so we consistently have to put up a front or put up a, a, a mood or put up just a way of being that says, I am this way because I don't want you to see what it really feels like to be me. But when we are specific about how drastic and powerful the blood of Jesus is, not only are we free from guilt, but we're free from the insecurities that revolve around you trying to be whoever it is that you're not. And we desperately need that, or else we cannot become the human that God's created. We cannot become those who bear His image to a broken world. We will consistently go the way of the world because that is the way of the world. Until we are very specific and very drastic in our understanding of the blood of Jesus and how powerful it is to buy us into the family of God and how nothing can do away with that, we will still walk in our guilt and in our insecurities because there's nothing powerful enough to deal with guilt or to flush out insecurities. And we will continue to be something that we're not and not liking who the saves that we're trying to be.
way that's not like, oh, how do you feel about me, but rather, Father, I've done this, 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 and now I'm going to move forward as if you love me, and I believe that you do. Do you feel what I'm saying there? To move in an intentional, authoritative way, as opposed to wondering how God feels about you, or wondering if you're actually forgiven, or wondering if you're thinking, sort of moving along. I think we get stuck, unable to deal with this stuff in our lives, because we are so active filled with problems. And perhaps in the same breath, that they might bring to Him, not just the things that they feel guilty about, but the things that they feel Father, this is a good feeling secure. Father, I'm worried about this. Father, I'm worried about this. But I believe that the blood of Jesus covers me and that I am a child who will lead and guide and direct and heal. And then you're powerful to do all those things. And we begin to move and press into God based on what we believe, not based on how we feel about ourselves. Um, I think that is an important way that we stand and be faithful. Is pressing into him on promises that he's made about your criminalness before him, 